This morning we've asked Maddie Pinto if she would come and read for us. Maddie is our a director of college ministry. If you're a new college student in town, this is a gal you need to get to know. She can tell you all about our college ministry. Maddie, would you read for us John chapter 1? John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Awesome. Thank you, Maddie. do hope you'll pray this week for uh, Maddie and all the other collegiate international staff and volunteers. This is the week everyone descends on Tempe. You looking forward to the traffic? Uh, but pray for them as they tr- begin to do outreach. Um, many times some of the most important things that happen in students' lives and turn up and some connectivity will happen this week. So pray for them. We're starting a new uh, series of messages today that we're calling Getting Started. So we'll cover the first couple of chapters in John. And our aim is to see how the life of Jesus as told in the Gospel of John, the ministry of Jesus, began to get going, began to get started. So I hope you'll come back and uh, enjoy it. We're going to spend the next... Lord willing, 48 weeks going through eight different series of sections in the Gospel of John, and that is breakneck speed. I know it sounds like a long time, uh, but that's about as quick as I can figure out how to get through this great book. I'm maybe slower than you, but I hope you'll uh, come back and enjoy it. So for today, we're going to look at these, this prologue, this introduction to the Gospel of John. We live in what might be called uh, the age of the superlative. Have you noticed that every other movie is the best movie ever? And a good dinner is not just a good dinner, it's an epic feast. Someone questioning the president's actions isn't just a question, it's the greatest witch hunt in American history. We're never just hungry, we are starving. Sports figures are not evaluated on their present abilities, but if they're the greatest that's ever played the game. It seems like everything must be the fastest, the prettiest, the loudest, the greatest, the most expensive, the smartest, 
or we're just not interested. Right? For some reason, we seem to be allergic to normal. Now, there are some good things and bad things about that. Uh, A good thing is, we inherently actually know that most of life is rather dull. And so, we, even though we use this kind of language, we tune a lot of it out. That's a good thing. That's a self-defense mechanism to survive. But there's also a drawback. That drawback is that when we come across something that is truly worthy of superlative language, we tend to tune it out. We tend to think it's just like anything else that we hear. But friend, John 1, 1 through 18, is truly, truly incredible. It's truly epic. What is most wonderful and earth-shattering oftentimes gets lost to our ears as something that's just phony like everything else. But may this text not do that because it's honestly, realistically, legitimately a majestic passage. There's 18 verses, 314 words. These words reach into eternity past. They display the love that every one of our hearts longs for. They articulate the miracle of God becoming a man. And right here in this prologue is a masterful articulation of essentially everything else that we're going to find in the whole book. It's truly not an exaggeration to say no more important words have ever been written about any subject in any language. John 1, 1 through 18 is so important. I want to encourage you today to take seriously the words that Maddie read and to linger long over their significance. Now, before we look at the main ideas of this text, let me speak just briefly to two groups of people that make up all who are in attendance today. First, there's Christians here, those who have come to know Christ. The Gospel of John contains some incredibly well-known verses, and that certainly is notwithstanding the first chapter. So maybe your temptation is like mine. It's to think, yeah, 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 yeah. I've already heard this. Don't make that mistake. There are new things yet to be experienced and discovered. In C.S. Lewis's classic series, The Chronicles of Narnia, there's a scene where Lucy, the main character, comes face to face again with Aslan, the lion that represents Jesus. And there's a dialogue that goes like this. Welcome, child, Aslan said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. Well, that's because you're older, little one, he answered. Not because you are, Lucy asks. I am not, says Aslan. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. My hope and prayer brothers and sisters, is that that would happen for you. That as we look yet again at a text that tells us about Jesus, 
that our minds and hearts and imaginations would be expanded with more and more truth about who Jesus is. He ought to get bigger in our minds even as we grow up in Christ, right? So may we learn together well more about Christ. Now, second, a brief word to those who are here today who do not claim to know Jesus. First of all, welcome. We're thrilled that you're here. We want this to be a church family where people who are still considering the claims of Christ feel welcomed. Are you curious about Him? Jesus? Well, there's no shortage of opinions out there about the most important man who's ever lived. I did a YouTube search this week on this question, who is Jesus? It returned 45,300,000 videos. While certainly uh, YouTube is entertaining, it may not be the best source of information about Jesus. You see, anybody can stick a video up, but many of these videos will be forgotten in months, weeks, maybe even days. But John, John has stood the test of time. A few years ago, Jill and I were on the island of Patmos in Greek, in Greece, where John spent time. One of the earliest copies of the book of John is there. I got to stand in front of a glass case looking at it no more than 150, 160 years after John would have written it, this copy. John has stood the test of time. No one making videos today speaks as an eyewitness to the life, death, and resurrection of the life of Jesus Christ. But John did. You see, John knew Jesus personally. He was present for most everything he'll talk about in this biography. And not only did he know Jesus, if I was a bit younger, I would say he was even in Jesus' squad. He was part of this little group of three who was with Jesus the most during his earthly ministry. So John doesn't speak as one at a distance. John speaks from personal experience. And not only that, he speaks as one who the Holy Spirit inspired to write these words. Now, you may not agree with his conclusions, but there's absolutely no excuse for not hearing him out, for taking somebody on YouTube versus a credible source. Again, a guy who knew Jesus personally. John wants you to know something about Jesus. He wants you to know that the words and actions of Jesus are the words and actions of God. And that if you'll believe Him, then as we sung earlier, you'll become a child of God. That's what this entire book is about. And again, you may end up disagreeing, but I hope you'll hear Him out. I hope you'll consider His words. You'll study the evidence. You'll talk with other people who have come to believe. You'll ask questions. We Christians believe that Christianity can handle the weight of any objection that you might have. Now to all of us, the introduction to John addresses 
two major issues, and we're covering so many verses, we just got to look at a summary today. So two major issues that are found in this passage. First, John tells us who Jesus is. And second, he tells us what Jesus has done. So who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We'll consider both briefly this morning. First, who Jesus is. A close reading of this passage would tell us many things about Jesus. It says that He's the light, He's the Son, He's the Creator. It alludes to the fact that He's the Messiah. But I want to focus in on the major two things the passage brings up. One, that Jesus is eternal God. And two, that He is the Word. First, eternal God. Let's start there together. The text starts with these words. In the beginning. In the beginning. If you're from an Asian culture, you have great benefit over the rest of us in the room. You see, those of us in the room who are from America, Native Americans, particularly Caucasians, and especially those under 50, we don't care anything about beginnings. Uh, We tend to think the world started when we were born. But yet beginnings are incredibly important. Beginnings not only tell us what has happened, they explain what's happening. And they even inform us on what's yet to come. We tend to be enamored with now. But John wants us to know something really important happened in the beginning. The Apostle John doesn't start his biography of Jesus, the place uh, or even a similar place that all the rest of the biographies of Jesus in the Bible do. So in your Bible, there are four books in a row, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of these are written by people who knew Jesus and their biographies about his life. But none of them start the same place John does. Luke starts with John the Baptist's parents. Mark begins earlier. He starts by quoting an Old Testament book in the Bible called Isaiah. Matthew reaches back further. He starts with a guy named Abraham. But John blows all them out of the water. John reaches back to before there was time, to the very beginning. From John we learn that before there was anything else, there was God. From John, we learn that Jesus was with God the Father from the very beginning. From John, we learn that Jesus didn't come into being. He's always been. Jesus is the creator, not the created. John's careful to show that from eternity past, Jesus has always been in a perfect relationship with God the Father. And we'll discover throughout the rest of the book that God is, in fact, a trinity. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. I don't quite understand that, but yet that is what the Bible teaches. That is who God is. And it's okay we don't understand it. It is simply the way it is. You see, when we talk about Jesus, 
we're talking about somebody utterly unique. No one else like him. No one. Jesus is eternal God. Now second, another thing this passage tells us about who Jesus is, is that Jesus is the Word. That's a rather odd expression, isn't it? This means yes. That is a strange way of talking. Look at verse 1, and notice how many times it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. God could have led John to write, in the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was the Savior. In the beginning was the Messiah. In the beginning was the King. In the beginning was the Son of God. In the beginning was light. All of these things are true. All of these things the book tells us. So why this phrase, in the beginning was the Word? Well, for some reason, this week as I was studying this passage, everything was coming out in pairs in my head. Um, So I'm going to give you two reasons why. There's more, but just two. First, why the Word? Here's the first reason. This text is meant to ring in our ears, recalling to mind another text. In other words, John 1 is an echo of an earlier passage in the Bible. See if you can see what I mean. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The beginning of John. But here's the beginning of the whole Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Maybe it'll be even more obvious here. John 1, 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Genesis 1, 4. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. It's almost as though this thing goes together. Genesis 1 tells the story of God's creation by the power of God's Word. God spoke and things came into existence. John 1 tells the story of the new creation coming to bear by the power of God's Word. They are side-by-side truths. John 1 echoing Genesis 1. You don't seem nearly as enamored with that as I was. Let me try again with a second reason. And this one is more prominent, definitely, in this text. Jesus' life and Jesus' speech reveal God's life and God's speech. In other words, to see and to hear Jesus is to see and hear God. Verse 18 says that very clearly. No one has ever seen God, meaning God the Father. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. To see 
Jesus. To hear Jesus is to see and hear God. He is the full self-expression of God. He is God speaking. So friends, God is many things, but distant, disinterested, quiet, aloof. None of these are fitting adjectives for God. God has spoken. He's spoken in the Word, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't mean you hear Him audibly. God may choose to speak in a way that you hear audibly, but probably not. You see, you've got to listen for where God speaks. He speaks in His Word. He speaks through the Word. John 1 shows us that he speaks in Jesus Christ. And now, another book in the Bible makes it even more plain. Hebrews starts this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, this is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the power, by the word of his power. Now I recognize some of this may sound like theological jargon, only good for rooms like this. But would you stop for a moment and just think with me about the significance of what we've just said? You don't have to wonder what God is like. You don't have to wonder what God has said. You need never to have any question at all about the love of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the call to obey God, what God has done that you might know Him, what God's will for your life is. These things have not been left to chance. God has spoken. God still speaks. This is really great news, is it not? Are you curious about what God says to those who have messed up really bad? Look to Jesus. Do you want to know what God thinks of injustice? And how he expects the poor to be treated? Look to Jesus. Do you want to know how to face rejection from your family for your faith? Look to Jesus. Do you want to know how to live a life of peace in an incredibly anxious age? Look to Jesus. These are all things Jesus himself faced. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in particular as we go through it together, John. Not as stale words on a page, but as the very living, active, breathing Word of God, revealing the Word of God. That's what John means when he says, in the beginning was the Word. So Jesus is eternal God and Jesus is the Word of God. 
Now let's consider the second great theme found in these verses. What Jesus has done. In a very real sense, we're going to spend nearly the next year, Lord willing, finding answers to that layer upon layer upon layer upon layer as we work through this book. If you're not already, I encourage you to meet up with another brother or sister in Christ or even someone who doesn't yet believe in God. Get together and read the passage we'll be studying in the next week. They're all listed on the internet. And consider their meaning. Talk together about what it might be saying. That way, when we come together, that experience will be more enriching and encouraging. And maybe you can come up and straighten me out on a few things. But in particular, what do these verses say? These 18. What do they tell us that Jesus has done? Well, for time's sake, we won't read it again, but verses 14 through 18 are the main thrust of this text in terms of what Jesus has done. They tell us that Jesus became flesh. Eternal God entered humanity, not by giving up his deity, but by adding humanity. The creator chose to enter what he created by becoming a Jewish man who lived in the first century. Nerds like me call that the incarnation. God becoming man. Let's read just for verse 14. I wonder if you'd read it with me. And the word became flesh. Full of grace and truth. This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before. Let's stop there. When John penned these words, he originally wrote them in Greek. Greek was the common language of the day. In many ways, English is today. So what? Well, every now and then, what the Greek tells us is enormously important and helps illuminate even more clearly what we can read in English. Verse 14 is one of those verses. Let me tell you just about one word. It's the word dwelt. Said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you have a translation other than the ESV, it might say that Jesus took up residence among us, or Jesus made his home among us. Literally, the Greek word says, Jesus tented among us, or Jesus tabernacled among us. Now, if, if you know the Bible, your brain is oozing out your ears right now because it just exploded. If you don't know, then that doesn't mean anything. So let me try to explain. In the Old Testament book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, we find God's people, the Israelites, being rescued out of slavery in Egypt and being gradually ushered toward Israel, the promised land where they would be free. And 
In the ensuing years between Egypt and life in Israel, the Israelites lived in tents. Can you imagine living in tents for your entire life? I think my daughter could do that just fine. No shower, no bed, no toothbrush, just roughing it. But in the middle of the tents, there was a special tent called the tabernacle. All the other clans or tribes were positioned around this tent because this tent, the tabernacle, was the centerpiece of life. Everyone was to understand we gather around. All of life is around the tabernacle. And inside the tabernacle is a special room called the Holy of Holies. And it's in this room that during this period of the world's history, God's glory, God's presence was harnessed. He was most focused there. And once a year, there was a special ceremony in which the high priest would go in there and would act on behalf of the people. And everybody understood, this is where the holy God dwells. But it was behind a curtain, symbolizing the sinfulness of the people and the holiness of God. Now John, who knew his... Old Testament, as we would call it, well, says that Jesus tented, Jesus tabernacled among people. Do you get what he's saying? God himself left heaven, came to earth, took on the tent of humanity. Not behind a veil. Out in the open. And through him, the very presence of God is known. Wow. God has tinted among his people. Friend, in Christ and through Christ, you can be in the very presence of God. Now we can apply this truth to all kinds of issues. Issues of everyday life. Let me take just one. How about, what does all of this big theology say to the so-called problem of evil. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've thought about it. Maybe you even feel it today. It goes something like this. There can't be an all-powerful God who is also good because there's evil in the world. Because if God was all-powerful and he was good, then there would be no evil. If you've never asked that, then I I fear you're not really paying attention to what's happening in the world. You've never been stung by disease or death. You don't have any close friends. Friends, there's evil all around us. Have you watched the news in the last 24 hours? Right here on our own soil, an outburst of racism. 
car mowing people over. It's horrendous. But if we look in our own hearts, there's evil in the last 24 hours. So how can there be an all-powerful God who's also good if there's evil? That has been a quandary for many. But this teaching from John that Jesus tinted among us shows us this is no problem for Christianity. Because you see, whatever the complication or difficulty or trial of evil means, it doesn't mean that God's not good. It doesn't mean that God's not powerful. Why? Because Jesus, God in himself, displayed perfect goodness. And Jesus, God himself, took on the most heinous act of evil that's ever been committed. He died on the cross as an innocent man in place of all of God's people. And so whatever evil means, it doesn't mean God's not good and God's not powerful because God took it on himself. He bore the punishment for all the sins of God's people. There's a famous incident that took place in the 1960s in New York City. I think it, as an illustration, makes the point better than I could. There's a 28-year-old woman nearing the steps of her apartment when an assailant attacked her and began to stab her. There's lots of stories about what happened, but one thing from all of them that's clear is that above her, in her own apartment complex, lights turned on as she screamed, help me, help me. Lights came on, drapes opened, people looked down. And as those lights came on and the drapes opened, the assailant ran. But a few minutes later, he came back. That's when he stabbed her to death. You see, nobody came down. They just looked. Why? Well, because they knew if I come down, then I too am at risk. I might die. And she's not worth that. Friends, God's not like that. God hasn't turned the light on humanity, heard us in our cries, and done nothing. God came down. Jesus came down. Jesus took the death that you and I deserve so that we could have his life. All the evil that's ever been done to us and all the evil that we've ever done was not enough to keep God from coming down. So this is who Jesus is. God in the flesh. Now how exactly can God add humanity, still be God, but be a Jewish man? I'm not sure. And that's okay. For this is what the Scripture teaches. 
And the Scripture speaks as the very Word of God. And contrary to most everything in my hardwiring, I don't have to understand everything for it to be right. My mama was right in that regard. Now, how do we respond to a message like this? I mean, unlike me, you probably don't have hours and hours and hours, dozens of them every week, to consider and ponder over texts like this. So what can you do with a passage like this that seems perhaps a bit detached from the hard realities of Monday morning? Well, the answer is right in our passage. Look at verse 11. It says, He, this is Jesus, came to His own, and His own people didn't receive Him, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name. He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Friends, the fitting response to this passage is to receive Jesus. To receive Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Well, the answer is right there. There are two clauses that go together side by side in verse 12. To all who did receive him. Let me clarify what that means. Who believe in his name. To receive Jesus is to believe in Jesus. It's to acknowledge what Jesus says is true. What Jesus did really happened. It's to believe the significance of it is. Everything must change. And it's to trust your life over to him. Turning from a life where you've tried to be in charge to a life where he's in charge. To all who trust him, you're given the gift of the right to become a children, to children of God. You see that there? This is an incredible statement. If you would believe in Jesus, you would become a son and daughter of God. I have a friend whose wife left him a mere two months into their marriage. And she left him for the best man. For months, my friend got in his car every morning and he drove to his best friend's house where he knew his wife was. And he took a note and he put it on her car. He did this not for days, not for weeks, for months, every day. It said something different every day, but the gist of it was, I love you, I forgive you, will you come back home? Can you imagine? While she's in the very place of her betrayal, in the most heinous way, he's going to her, saying, I will bear the brunt of your actions. 
I will receive you back. I love you. By God's grace, they were reconciled. And some 15 years later, they have three beautiful little kids. That would never have happened had my friend not got in the car and left those notes. He wanted to receive his wife back. Friend, Jesus wants you to receive him. And if you will, he has come to your car. He has left a note. That note is the Gospel of John. That note says, I love you. I am full of grace and truth. I have died for you. Come to me. Won't you believe? And if you have believed, won't you continue to abandon everything for him? Todd, would you come now, brother, and pray for us? Asking God to embed this word deep in our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the words of the Apostle John. We thank you for the trustworthy testament of a man that lived and walked with Christ, who witnessed his miracles, who heard his teaching who saw him nailed to a cross and who saw the nail-pierced hands of his resurrected body and who then by the Spirit's leading recorded what he saw and heard so that we might also believe. Thank you again for the great love that you have for your people and for the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Thank you that Christ, present at the very foundation of creation, became our humble and good shepherd in order to lay down his life on our behalf. Thank you that in believing in Christ and his divinity, his manhood, and in his saving work on the cross that we now have the right to be called children of God. What an unfathomable gift of grace it is to receive Christ's righteousness in exchange for our sin and our rebellion. And Father God, we confess this morning that as Chuck said, we read and have heard these passages over and over again, and they've perhaps lost some of their majesty. We pray this morning that we would see Jesus as bigger and better than we've ever understood him before. May we glimpse a bit more of the immeasurable breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love for us, and in so doing be filled with all the fullness of God. May we find true peace and rest, something that we all long for in Christ alone. This weekend, we witnessed again the ugliness of hatred in the news from Charlottesville, Virginia, Well, this is nothing new. Brother has been pitted against brother, and tribe against tribe from the very beginning of time. Our hearts still grieve the injustice that is present in this world. Father God, where there is partiality in our own hearts, please forgive us. We pray for those that are in bondage to the sin and hatred, for them to repent, and we pray for peace and safety for that community of Charlottesville. We know there's no promise this side of heaven for peace, but we would ask that the gospel of reconciliation in Christ would be powerfully on display in their community and in ours as well. 
Let us not react to violence and hatred with yet more violence and hatred. Father, we long for that day when your justice will prevail and for the nations to be healed. And finally this morning, we pray for Sovereign Grace and Gilbert. We pray for Pastor Rich Richardson as he is preaching from Ecclesiastes. May the gospel be proclaimed there in truth and in boldness. May the name of Jesus be lifted high, and may souls be filled and nourished by the living water of the gospel this morning. May their gathering be a glorious foretaste of what it will be like to one day gather together, united, around the throne of God in the new Jerusalem. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.